Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 497 with Aaron Schmuckler. Aaron has some pro tips to help you avoid burning out by shifting your focus. You'll learn one, a powerful phrase for de-escalating conflict, two, how to stop feeling so self-conscious, and three, how to make work more fulfilling. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, they're at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep497, or you can tap your podcast app player's episode notes or description to expand and tap in one tap. So that will help prevent your burnout just that little bit more. Here's Aaron's story. For over 20 years, Aaron has been striving to help people find their own intrinsic motivation, their capacity to collaborate, and the fulfillment that comes from harnessing the creative impulse in all of us to serve others. In 2014, Aaron and his business partner, Adam, co-founded the YesWorks and had developed the Adaptability Model of Collaboration Leadership Training and the Adaptable Culture Audit. Aaron and the YesWorks serve clients across the country and across industries, including Microsoft, Mod Pizza, Discover Org, Burkhart Dental Supply, SOG Knives, Ninth Gear, and Textainer to make work good for people and people good for work. Big thanks to Aaron for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Aaron. Aaron, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. I've been listening to your show for years, learning a lot from it, admiring you from afar. We're birds of a feather, you and I. Oh, thank you. Well, well I, I appreciate that. And well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I'd love to get started by by hearing a little bit of about your background. It seems like one of your uh, formative experiences and, and key credential is that you worked in the elephant house of the National Zoo. What's this story? Well, if I'm really going to tell the story, it goes back to that my mother actually was dating the curator of mammals at the National Zoo. I had to, in order to graduate from high school, find some way to do community service. A number of my friends had done envelope licking and envelope stuffing and things like that. That sounded like an unbelievable drag to me. And he said, well, I can't get you a, a gig, but I can introduce you to the head of the elephant house power broker. Exactly. I met the assistant <laughs> curator of mammals. He told me that they don't permit people my age at 16 at the time to work in the elephant house because it's too dangerous. And after an hour's conversation, he changed his mind and permitted me 
to work in the elephant house. I Ooh, uh, shoveled, <laughs> I shoveled, I did the calculation at one point. I don't remember what it was, but it was many thousands of pounds of poop. And uh, <laughs> I got to ride the elephants and it was a fantastic, remarkable, fun experience. And I learned a lot about, about leadership actually there because of how consistent you have to be as an elephant keeper, which I was not. But as an elephant keeper, as an elephant trainer, you've got to be incredibly consistent or the elephant will kill you. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that could really be a formative experience and, and one that probably certainly beats the, the licking of envelopes uh, for yeah. your volunteer requirement. Yeah, I'm, I don't make a good envelope licker. <laughs> <laughs> and it's dangerous. I guess the sponges are maybe a better approach. Uh, yeah, indeed, yeah. No paper cuts on the tongue for me. Well, so nowadays you've, you've moved on to, to different career path uh, outside of elephants, but your company utilizes the work of improv, yes, and something you call adaptability. Kind of, what, what's the story here and, and how does improv stuff help us be awesome at our jobs? Well, the story, again, you know, I'll go to my family. My wife told me she was pregnant. I looked around the work culture and the place that I was working at the time and thought, man, is this a drag? People clock watching. It wasn't particularly cool to be glad to be there, although I was. I, I loved my work. And I just thought, I can't stand the idea that my daughter is going to inherit the prevailing work culture in this country. And so uh, I reached out to a friend of mine who's the best improviser I know, Adam Utley, and I said, I want to change work culture. I want to use improv to do it. I need you to help me. I can't do this on my own. And so we started actually doing what we called improv for business, which we knew other people were doing. And as we got into Further along in our business, we realized that the other people out there doing improv for business were doing something different from what we were doing. And so we had to come up with a different name for it. And we thought about the folks who had hired us, what they were looking for. They wanted their teams to adapt. They wanted their teams to be excellent communicators, to be excellent collaborators. They wanted really people to be adept at teaming. And so we took adaptability and adept and we smashed them together. And so we call the our training program Adaptability. Clever. All right. <laughs> and so then tell us, what does it mean to be adaptable and how can we be more of that? Well, when we define this for a team, an adaptable team is, and I suppose it would stand for individuals as well, somebody who is adaptable, a team who that is adaptable is exceptionally good at doing what they do regardless of the circumstances. And what we know about what it takes to do that is that you really need to take in input. You need to take in the input of your fellow collaborators. You need to give input, you know, with their, when I think about, the, what's the name of the book? Uh, good to Great. You know, he talks about how important it is to have an open system. A collaborative system is an open system. And uh, so you need to be an exceptional collaborator and also to collaborate with reality. I think one of the things that prevents companies from being adaptable, teams and people from being adaptable in my own life, where I am not adaptable, where I get myself into trouble is where I am not allowing myself to see reality. And so where teams where companies resist reality, that's where they run into trouble. And you can ask Kodak about that. So reality like, hey, the marketplace is changing. Customers don't want this thing anymore. Uh, what are some other realities we might ignore? And, and, and why do we do that? Uh, one of my clients is a CEO who had an important director in his company who is an incredibly strong performer who had 
connections in the community that really mattered to their company and who engaged in a lot of passive aggressive behavior, who uh, did a lot of things to it that offended people that really created an environment of fear and manipulation on her team. And rather than look that reality square in the face, this CEO spent a lot of time kind of making excuses for her. So that that's one example. Another example might be, you know, I can think of my own efforts to prospect to find clients and I might write an email that I really like. And so I will send it out to lots of folks that I've met, lots of clients from the past. And I'll just keep sending this email out, even though it's not getting me any results because I like it. I'm closed to the fact that it may not be giving me the results that, you know, an email that's that where I'm paying more attention to my audience might get. Okay. And so then how do you open yourself up to receive and adapt to that reality well? Well, it takes discipline and it, to me, it, it really takes systematizing collaboration. And that's what improvisers are great at doing. There are principles behind improv. A lot of people think that improvisers get on stage together and they wing it and they just kind of, they make it up as they go along. The fact is that they don't make it up as they go along. What they do is they listen really hard, both to their scene partners in the case of theater improvisation, and they listen also really hard to the tiny little tickles in their brain that erupt as a result of what they've heard from their partners. So they allow themselves to be inspired. They allow themselves to surprise themselves, and they allow themselves to not be attached to where they think this thing might go. And speaking for myself, I find it very difficult to let go of that attachment. Yeah. I find it very difficult to let go of the plan. Some of the habits that I've formed are to also listen to all, both to my improvising partner, whether that's, you know, on stage or whether that is a CEO whom I'm coaching and allow my plan to kind of sit beside me while instead I react I respond to the moment and I, I forget, was it Churchill who said that planning is imperative and plans are nothing? Yeah, that is ringing a bell with so like the process of planning means that you're thinking through a lot of great stuff, right? but the actual output of it is, may very well not at all be what you end up doing, but you're enriched by having thought about it. Exactly. It goes right along with the quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Certainly. Otherwise you end up like, I guess, Michael Scott, who's always had a, a plan in his improv to have a gun <laughs> in, in every scene is, is what I'm thinking about uh, from the office. Yeah. And it didn't work so well. He no. did, and his improvisers didn't, didn't like working with him and excluded him from the fun, <laughs> the fun they were having. I don't know the particular context that you're talking about. And I imagine that what happens when you bring a gun into every scene is that mm -hmm. people simply get shot and you railroad <laughs> the scene. You determine what's happening and nobody else really has any input. That's right. Yeah, they're all just on the floor pretending to be dead. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Certainly. Well, it's, it's talking about improv. We were going to talk about burnout. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but I suppose that there really is a, a healthy bridge and overlap here associated with, uh, I understand one of your foundational principles here is that when you're, when you're focused on yourself and you're planning how it should go as opposed to the other, you naturally uh, get more exhausted. Can you uh, unpack some mm -hmm. of these ideas here? So 
there's this concept emotional labor that that's getting a lot of traction in some of the research these days of people uh, basically there are a number of forms of emotional labor uh, we have a big tech client out here in the Pacific Northwest for example where we surveyed the leaders and most of them in answer to the question uh, do you feel like you can be at yourself at work on a scale from one to ten they were down in the three to four range thinking you know that that's not very much yourself so if you're not being yourself, that's emotional labor. Or I think about uh, folks in customer service. We work with folks in customer service who feel like they have to smile and act chipper. And they, they're putting on this disguise. They're putting on these adjectives that fit their picture of how they're supposed to be with their clients. And I'm not suggesting that they're not correct. And it's exhausting to, for example, if you're already tired because it's the end of the day, it's exhausting to decide for yourself, I've got to be chipper, I've got to be energetic, I've got to be cheerful. Yeah. And in fact, my degree is in theater. I'm a, I'm a theater director. And what actors know is that you don't go on stage and be angry. You don't go on stage and be or pretend to be cold. You don't go on stage and pretend to be happy. You go on stage and try to affect the people on stage with you. And when you invest stakes in accomplishing affecting the other person, then the way that you must be bubbles up naturally. And so the, the implication for folks at work is that if you go in to work to serve people. If you're in a call center and you get on the phone and you're dealing with an angry customer and you think, I've got to be cheerful, that will feel very, very difficult. And it will, it will wear you down to have somebody yelling at you. And in the face of what feels like belittling behavior from them, you are just all smiles, it will feel incongruous and incongruent, and it will be exhausting. If, however, you think of it as your responsibility, your duty, your mission to serve them, then that cheer will both be easier, less exhausting, and it will also be much more fitting, much more relevant to the situation. So instead of responding to anger with cheerfulness, which might actually get you more anger, mm -hmm. you respond to anger with service that may also sound light, that may also sound cheerful, and it will sound, it will also be organic. We're incredibly uh, sophisticated tools. We're incredibly sophisticated measuring tools, we humans, and we pick up on very subtle things. And I'll give you an example from my week. I hired somebody to craft and send out some marketing messages. And the name of my company is The Yes Works. He was supposed to send me this message. I was going to review it, approve it, and then he would start sending it out. And instead, he just started sending it out. And instead of, instead of saying, hi, uh, I'm Aaron, a co-founder of The Yes Works, it said, hi, I'm Aaron, co-founder of Yes It Works. And I was not happy. And I called him and he was, you know, he, he didn't, he certainly acknowledged it as a mistake. And uh, the more I 
kind of tried to get him to respond in the most relevant way that I could imagine, he was becoming more and more defensive. And in response to his becoming more and more defensive, I, I noticed I got my dander up and I was just about to kind of raise my voice when I took a page out of my own training book and said, how can I serve him? And in that moment, I also kind of recognized how difficult it would be for me as a business owner to get this call from one of my clients, how ashamed I would likely feel, how tempted I would be to try to save face in whatever way that I could. And in that moment of service, I calmed down, not in effort. It was an effortless calm down, right? Like just all of that chemistry just drained out of my body. And I said, you know what? I can imagine how difficult this is and how much your mind must be spinning. So I'll tell you what I think we should do. I think we should get off the phone. I'll give you 24 hours to just consider how you would like to respond. Because I think I've been putting you on the spot and requiring that you respond to me right away. And it, it was no effort for me to pretend to be calm in order to get that response from him. It was simply I decided to serve him instead of requiring that he serve me exactly as I wanted to be served. And it changed the whole relationship right there in that moment. Well, well just because we have to have completion for a story, what happens within the 24 hours with the response? Uh, he came back in a much more relevant fashion and stopped defending and stopped kind of trying to retry questions that we had already answered earlier. And it is an ongoing thing because it's actually very recent. So uh, it, I gave him to the end of today to uh, give me a response and we haven't quite got there yet. Okay. Well, so that says powerful there with regard to that mindset shift with regard to how can I serve this person? And then in doing so, it's I guess it's just natural that you're focused less on yourself and how you're angry and you've been wronged and this is ridiculous and you're spending this good money and this is a rookie mistake and aren't they supposed to be good at their jobs mm -hmm. into you're in their shoes and, and realize, and, and I could see how that would just sort of change your whole emotional being in a hurry. Yeah. And some of the things, one of the, uh, the objections that we get when we talk to clients about adopting this mind of service you know, just as you said, I'm the one paying. Why am I going to serve him? Well, because it's less exhausting for me, because <laughs> it's more effective. Uh, you know, we actually started to make progress when I started to serve him. And I'm not talking about being walked on. I, I didn't say, you know what, it's no problem. Don't worry about it. Instead, I thought, you know, how would I want a client to treat me? And part of how I want a client to treat me is to hold me accountable. And part of how I want a, would want a client to treat me is to give me the opportunity to come to wisdom, right? So serving people is not soft. It's not laying down. It's calling people up to their highest selves uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's bringing somebody a glass of water. No. <laughs> okay. Well, so so this is, this is great in, in terms of... You're less exhausted and you're getting better results. And so I guess my impression here is that this seems like a great principle, which is, is wise and proper and, and we should do. Uh, however, in, in the heat of, of busyness, lots of obligations, lots of distractions and things pulling for our attention and our own sort of emotional triggers, it's probably hard to do with, with great consistency. So do you have any pro tips on, on how we can you know, keep coming back to this again and again when forces try to pull us away? Practice. 
practice, practice, practice. I am really good at this in my professional relationships. I'm a lot less good at it in my personal relationships. And so I practice there as well, asking for feedback, taking timeouts, adopting tools. One of my favorite tools, and I know we're going to get to this again later, is, is tell me more about that, right? When I find myself getting my dander up, I go, okay, I'm going to choose to say, tell me more about that. And what I get often is an opportunity to, as they say, listen to understand where I can feel the, that kind of hijack coming, that, that neurochemical hijack coming. I say, tell me more about that. And then I get more information. So that's another thing. Vocabulary and tell me more about that as a piece of vocabulary uh, is an incredibly powerful mind shifter or mind crafter. So we can craft our minds with, uh, by disciplining ourselves to certain kinds of vocabulary. Yes. Well, what's so great about that is, is you can, well, that, that piece of phraseology there, tell me more about that is, is very flexible and that could go in anywhere. And it gives you a pause because like, even if someone said the most offensive, <laughs> outrageous things to you, like Aaron, you are a moron and your entire company sucks. And is this a big ripoff? I think it's a big ripoff fraud scam. And I, I need all of my money returned instantly. I, I don't know. Right. I'm just trying to conceive of the most outrageously <laughs> enraging things someone could say to you. And you could, and, and when you're about ready to yell, you, you could say, well, tell me more about that. It even just says, so you could take some breaths. <laughs> and it's incredibly disarming. And you're, you really are right on the money. We were working in a call center just last month and some of the call center reps were telling us some of the horrendous things that people say to them when they call. Ooh, example, please. Dirt. Give me the juicy deets, Aaron. <laughs> you can skip the profanity if possible. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, skipping the profanity. You are a bleepity bleep. Your company is full of bleepity bleep bleep. And I can't believe that you have the audacity to steal my money. Right? That's that's one of the things that, that oh, uh, this person said. And I'm, I'm toning down my voice also, uh, as I understand it, that, that was pretty well hollered. You know, the person had yeah. to take their headset off uh, in order not to get their ears damaged. And this is exactly the tool that we recommended to her. Tell me about that. And the means, the way in which, I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous act of service. To say to somebody who is in that frame of mind, tell me about that is such a tremendous act of service. You can hear the fear and the lack of the, the, the expectation that they will not be received, the expectation that they are, that they are out there on a limb all alone. You can hear it in the vocabulary. You can hear it in the tone of voice. You know, that's what's happening from afar. When you're the receiver of that, it just feels like an attack. Yeah. But to serve them in such a way as to say, not, Hey, screw you. Or I'm going to hang up or you can't talk to me like that to say instead, tell me about that is so disarming because it is such an act of service in a moment when they're expecting a battle. And I think it's great for feedback too, just in, in, within a workplace. If, if someone says, you know, hey, Aaron, you know, I think that 
this podcast interview, you're really scattered, you're all over the place. Have you done any prep whatsoever? Uh, your sound quality is abysmal. Did you read any of the, the documents I shared about a proper mic? Whatever. So even, even if I give you feedback, that's, uh, that might be true. It's not. You're doing great. Uh, <laughs> it, it, might, it, it might be true. And if it's not overtly hostile, I, I think tell me about that works there too just because like i cannot believe the way i bend over backwards and this is the lack of appreciation i'm getting to tell me that i'm not meeting expectations after this guy gave me zero guidance whatsoever but whatever right you can sort of get, go get let's start spinning with regard to why you're mad about the feedback you're yeah. hearing but then tell me about that one might get you some some actionable wisdom and, and two lets you calm down yeah and three i think we'd really just as a manager, I'd appreciate it. Like, well, thank you. Here's a person who is actually interested in my feedback as opposed to putting up all the excuses and, and defenses. And we both get to learn that way, right? If you, as my manager, come to me and lambast my work and I say, tell me more about that. I mean, you're likely to come off of that out of that lambasting posture because it's again, it's unexpected, right? We expect resistance. It's Aikido. Right. Aikido is 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 a martial art wherein you absorb the energy of your uh, combatant and redirect it. And so the service is a is a fantastic form of interpersonal emotional Aikido. And so when I say tell me more about that to an angry manager, well, I might get an initial kind of fiery burst, but then it's all spent and even more likely the the fiery burst won't even happen because the wind is, has just suddenly been removed from those sails. And now we're on this. It appears as though we are on the same side of the table looking at the same jigsaw puzzle. And because that really lowers defenses and it diminishes offenses, we can both become a lot more objective about about how these puzzle pieces fit together. You, as my manager, may discover something that you didn't know. I, as the managed, may discover something that I didn't know. And we both get to walk away with a lot fewer bruises and scrapes. That's really great stuff. So then when you talk about service, uh, I guess you're, you're thinking about service in the moment in terms of a mm -hmm. conversation. But mm -hmm. we could also pull back and think about service more broadly in terms of your overarching personal purpose or your purpose as an employee. How do you think about some of that introspection and, and, and clarity that can infuse the service into everything and good vibes? Boy, what a question! Uh, thank you for asking it because you've got me thinking now, and uh, you know I'm 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 looking at the ceiling. So in our first, the first of our fundamentals of adaptability, the whole umbrella, the whole purpose of the day, we call it trust as an action, and you get trust as an action through a got your back culture, and trust. You know, we talk about trust as a feeling. Trust is, in fact, also an action. And it's, you know, there's often kind of this stalemate that happens in workplaces where, Pete, I'm not going to give you any tasks. I'm also not going to be vulnerable with you until you prove to me that you are worthy of my trust. Now, what do you have, though, to prove your worthiness of my trust? It's kind of like the catch 22 where I won't give you a job until you have experience and you can't get experience without getting the job. And I will never feel trust for you. I'll never trust in you until I invest my trust, until I give you my trust, until I take trust as an action. And then I will experience from you what you do with it. So you can either earn more trust or you can 
spurn, you can burn that trust. Either way, the trust I really have to have is trust in myself or trust in the system or trust in the rest of the team to be able to weather whatever you, Pete, do with the trust. Mm -hmm. And so this is maybe a roundabout way of getting to my answer for you, which is that I anyway find a lot of meaning in figuring out how to have ever more trust in myself. And part of how I have ever more trust in myself is by serving others. And I, I think you brought this up a little bit earlier on the, the self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is such an apt description of itself, right? That term is so apt. I'm conscious of where I have anxiety. I am conscious of myself. I'm really paying attention to myself. When we stand up in front of a crowd and feel nervous, feel frightened of public speaking, it is because we are self-conscious. We are conscious of, of ourselves. Will I do it right? Will they like me? Will I stumble over my words? Will I remember what I wanted to say? There is all of this focus on the self. And what happens when somebody stands up in front of a crowd and instead thinks, I am here to serve you, and they speak and they pay attention to the response that they get from the crowd, they pay attention to how attentive the crowd is, they pay attention to where the crowd may need them to pause, these things just flow. And the anxiety melts away because we are other conscious. So what's the cure for self-consciousness? The cure for self-consciousness is consciousness of the other. And service is the best portal for gaining that consciousness. Yeah. And so when it comes to consciousness of the other, I think that the questions that you ask yourself are, are powerful in terms of focusing your energies and your attentions onto something like the brain just naturally wants to seek answers to questions posed. Or like you told a story earlier, the brain seeks completion to a, a story that we, we've waded into the middle of. So <laughs> are there some internal questions that you recommend folks take on that have a natural way of, of pointing our consciousness to others? The what do you need in this moment is, is a really good one, which is different from what do you want? What do you need? Because people will tell us what they want all day. It may not be what they need. It may not be what they would what would really affect them. Uh, you know, you can think about negotiations in medical malpractice situations where they're saying, you know, we need five million dollars and the the negotiation goes back and forth. 200,000, no 5 million. Okay, 300,000, no 5 million. And when you get, uh, sometimes when you get the patient, the wrong patient away from their attorney, all they really need is an apology. Yeah. So what is it that you need is a great question. And if I may respond to your question in other ways other than answering it, you know, there, our system of adaptability, the, the got your back culture that we're talking about, we build on uh, on four principles. One, yay for failing. That not, hey, uh, isn't it great that we failed? In fact, we, we say failing rather than failure because failing is a fragile present progressive word. The only thing you need to do to break that verb is to pick yourself up and start working again. If you're working, then you're not failing because 
uh, you're actually back in the trying s- stage. So it's it, it's actually fantastic to have ambitions that you can't easily accomplish. That's how we grow. And also being in an environment where yay for failing is practiced, that's a service in and of itself. To say yay for failing to somebody else who's maybe just fallen down is a service. To say yay for failing publicly is also a service because you create an environment where other people feel free to fail and then get up. By the way, I I don't mean to say that we should just wallow in it, but we should get up and keep working. So we move from yay for failing into be obvious, which is about really being direct, really being clear, saying what has so far been unsaid. Nothing goes without saying. And most importantly, what's obvious to you is not necessarily what's obvious to me. There is no such thing as common sense. And these are all questions also in a, in a way. What is the obvious thing to me? What may not be obvious to you? How do I create clarity? What are the things that have gone unsaid so far? What's the elephant in the room? And from there, we say, get it, give it, that you really have to take in the information this we were talking about earlier you have to take in the information in order to have a relevant response right kodak refused to take in the information that digital was the way of of photography's future largely because they were attached to their film business they made so much money on film and film processing that they couldn't even imagine a reality in which film and film processing were going to be removed from the economy and then lastly yes and which is something that you brought up which is an incredibly advanced skill. And while it's the most commonly known improv principle, it's also the hardest because it's hard to say yes to bad ideas. It's hard to say yes to somebody who says on the phone, you're a bleepity bleep and your company is full of bleepity bleep bleep bleep. How dare you steal my money? Saying, tell me more about that is actually a yes and. Yeah, right. Without you having to explicitly... Say, I agree, yeah, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> we are fraudulent, aren't we? Right. It's, it's like, tell me more about that. It's like, I'm curious and we can build on, on that, and, you know, without you feeling like you have, you know, betrayed something by Indeed. giving something up. That's right. And yes, also might take the form of, I can understand how you would see it that way. Mm-hmm. And let me share how I see it. That's good. Ooh, well, thank you. So, all right. Sorry if that was too long and monologue. Oh, no, I, I love it. I noticed I, I was uh, holding forth. No, we're, we're covering a, a lot of really great stuff here. And so then I'm intrigued when it comes to... So it sounds like with regard to burnout, that when you practice these things, you're just naturally less exhausted because you're not forcing it. You're not faking it. You know, serving is, it's energizing just because it feels good to mm-hmm. to help people and, and, and make them mm-hmm. feel good. So any other tips when it comes to keeping the energy flowing? You've, you've got a, a interesting turn of a phrase about treating the work day like a workout. Uh, what does that mean here? <laughs> A lot of people come in to work and I have been this guy and they go through the motions. And there's actually, I think, nothing more burnout inducing than just going through the motions, phoning it in, following uh, procedure and protocol on autopilot. That we are beings, we humans who aspire to growth. We are fed by growth. We are fed by accomplishment. And there's nothing fulfilling about going in and and just going through the motions. There may be a few people out there who would love to be paid 
I hear about folks whose jobs essentially don't really exist. They go in, they're paid, and there's nothing that they are required to accomplish. And most people in that circumstance feel like they're withering on the vine. Mm -hmm. And one of the great ways, I think, to feel as though you are working, growing, contributing every day is to come in and serve. That there is never, you cannot serve while going through the motions. You cannot serve while on autopilot. If you really are trying to serve the people in front of you, we people are incredibly dynamic, incredibly changeable, changing things. And so by serving, we create the constant change of what it is that we need to accomplish and the ways in which we may need to accomplish it. And if you really are committed to serving, when I am really committed to serving, I also run up against my own bull, the places where my ego really gets in my own way, the places where I have blind spots. And in my most intimate relationships are the places where I am most tempted to serve myself where I'm most tempted, for example, to have arguments where I can watch myself saying, I never did that, or that's not where I'm coming from, even though I know that the truth is exactly what my, what my wife, for example, is telling me it is, and my ego won't let me tell the truth. And so that's a place where if I am able to turn myself instead to service, that I get to grow, I get to feel accomplished, and therefore I get to feel alive. And really, what is burnout but not feeling alive? That's good. Aaron, tell me, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Oh, man, we're just scratching the surface, I think. And that's worth mentioning all by itself, that we're just scratching the surface. And the other thing is, you know, that we we will serve best when we are generous with ourselves. I'm not suggesting that we go out and be selfless. I'm suggesting that we go out and serve. And sometimes that means that we need to turn off our cell phone and go to the spa, go get a massage, go on a fly fishing trip, as somebody I was talking to this morning is, is about to do in Alaska, to recharge so that that serving of the self is sometimes required, is, is regularly required, frankly, in order to be able to serve others. And when we find the places where our conditioning, where our ego, where our habits interfere with our ability to be decent, to serve, to even be proud of ourselves rather than ashamed. Well, I suggest that we be kind to ourselves. And, you know, I, I remember telling my mentor just a couple of weeks ago about a place that I was just like, man, I just don't know why I keep doing this. And she said, why do you judge it? And it was so freeing to have her say that to me. And that gift that she gave me also made me more capable of addressing this gap in my own habit. Lovely. Thank you. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? John Kennedy is reputed to have been walking through NASA and saw a janitor carrying his broom and said something to the effect of, you know, what is it that you do here? And this janitor turned to him and said, well, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Nice. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Adam Grant in one of his books, cites some research about leaders, that leaders are more likely to receive 
input, receive ideas about how to solve a problem from their team if they have first tried to solve a problem themselves. And it doesn't even have to be the same problem, but simply the the fact of putting yourself into a problem-solving posture before hearing somebody else's ideas makes us more receptive and less critical in that kind of nagging sense than we would be just hearing their, their suggestions cold. Yes, thank you. And a favorite book? I'm going to have to give you two. Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. The subtitle of that is How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And uh, I'll put in another quick quote here from Liz Wiseman. At the apex of the intelligence hierarchy is the genius maker, not the genius. And also, I love The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Thank you. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I have a headset made by Plantronics that allows me to hear and be heard on my phone better than anything while I am hands-free, even walking into a 10-mile-per-hour headwind. I love this thing. In fact, the couple of days when I could not find it, I went to Best Buy and bought another one just so I could use it that day and then return it if and when I found the one that I had misplaced. Well, now we have to hear the bottle number. Uh... I let's see. Uh, I think it's fifty two hundred. It's not there on the device, but it's got a little arm that comes out from your ear, you know, so that the microphone is near your mouth, and it's it's wonderful. Nothing else that I've ever tried comes close. And a favorite habit. Tell me more about that. Hands down, we've already <laughs> talked about it. But the, saying that, particularly when I am inclined to dismiss the other person as irrelevant in some way, uh, to say instead. Tell me more about that. Hands down, my favorite habit. Is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and is quoted back to you often? Yeah, the the second fundamentals course in our series of, of three, the umbrella for that day is it's never about the thing. It's always about the relationship hmm. and the implications of that being whether you like it or not, people will come away from this interaction affected by you and your future relationship with them will be affected by it as well. And that is much more lasting than whatever the transaction might have been about. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I am the only Aaron Schmuckler on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. And you can also find me at theyesworks.com. And you can hear my voice more along with my guests on the podcast, Mighty Good Work. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. The next time you find yourself in that amygdala hijack where you feel the chemistry rising, where you uh, are either getting fighty or flighty, see if you can just remind yourself with one word, serve, and see what that does for you. And see if you can find a way to serve the other person, even while your amygdala is tempting you to fight or to flee. Aaron, this has been a treat. Thanks so much for sharing your time today and for listening for years <laughs> and keep up the great work. Well, Pete, I think you are a really excellent curator and contributor to this world of how to do work well, how to do great work and how to be great doing it. So I'm glad you're out there. Boy, I loved Aaron's magical phrase, tell me more about that. I might recommend saying that out loud 30 times just so that it gets deep into your bones. Maybe turn that into the background of your phone or your desktop. 
for a week or two or three so it gets settled in. It is so valuable. It shifts things to service. It gives you a moment to think and take a breath. Huge. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F497. I'd also recommend you push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's John Townsend. John is sharing a bit about the relational nutrients that we need from our people and our relationships. Good stuff. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.